Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. And the word of the Lord reads, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the word of the Lord. John Broger once wrote, Learning how to love your neighbor requires a willingness to draw on the strength of Christ, Jesus Christ, as you die to self and live for him. Living in this manner allows you to practice biblical love for others in spite of adverse circumstances or your feelings to the contrary. So again, welcome back to our series on the letter to the Romans titled The Power of the Gospel. And we titled this series this way because Paul, in his own words, says the gospel is the power of God to save those who believe which stands in contrast, I think, to how the world around us understands what power is. You see, I think the world thinks that power is political muscle. That's why we're bombarded with advertisements all the time. That's why we hear what we hear on the news and all the propaganda. That's why there's so much scheming and maneuvering and backroom dealing, be it on a national level or in a local community level. People believe that politics is the way to get things done, that that politics is the real power in the world. Some people think that power comes from money and influence, right? And on the surface, it could seem that way, especially in the world that we live in. Those who have money influence the rest of our lives, whether for good or for evil, and, and, and many use their power of their wealth to buy political power, right? By the way, which is the theme of Oliver Anthony's, you know, uh, song, The Rich Men North of Richmond, uh, he sees it as that many people use money to try to control people and what they think and what they do. And then many people think that power is just simply just sheer brawn. It's, it, it's physical strength or it's numerical strength. How many people are on your side and can you get things done because you have the, the numerical and the strength advantage? But for all of these things that the world sees as a source of power, they are absolutely meaningless when you consider the size and the scope and the scale of just our own galaxy, much less the scale of the universe. One of the things I love about physics and astronomy is it really puts things in perspective very, very quickly. We realize that we're just a speck of dust. But yet we have a God who we serve is the one who created it all. And he created everything that exists by the power of his word. Not by muscles, not by politics, not by money, by his word. 
Everything that exists today leapt into existence from nothing more than simply his words, let there be. Every atom, every star, every molecule, every galaxy, the awesome power of God and his majesty are always on full display, real power. And Paul tells us then that is the power of God in the gospel. The power of God to transform all of creation. The power of God to take what was dead and make it alive again. The power of God to take what was broken and make it new again. The power of God who created all things is found in the simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul declares it. And that's why Paul makes a point to write this masterpiece of theology to explain it. Because because it is the power of God himself to save. And the letter to the Romans is the greatest exposition of the gospel in all of scripture. And in Romans chapter 1 through 11, Paul masterfully unpacks this theology for us. If you remember, he explains what the gospel is, which is the bad news of our sinful condition and who we are. But it's also the good news of what God has done to rescue us in Christ Jesus. In fact, that's what the gospel means. It means literally good news. He also explains how the gospel works, how it is that one man, Jesus Christ, can be our substitute. And how he can earn for us the righteousness that's needed so we can be reconciled to God. And how at the same time he can pay the penalty of our sin. Paul also explains the blessing the gospel gives to those who believe. Which includes peace with God. And access to his grace. And the love of God poured into our hearts. And then he explains the freedom the gospel provides for those who trust in Jesus, freedom from the law and the requirements of the law and freedom from sin at the same time. And and then Paul writes about the immutable hope that all believers have because they are safe in the hands of God. That is the truth that has stayed my mind time and time and time and time and time again, that those who trust in him will not be put to shame, that those who are holding on to Christ are safe. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been and what you've done, if you will confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The essence of the gospel is that all of mankind has fallen short in God's standard of righteousness And because of that, they deserve his wrath. But God, in his grace and mercy, sent Jesus in the world to live for us and to die for us and was raised, proving that God's justice had been satisfied. And the promise that God makes is simply this. If you believe in Christ and his gospel, then you are not only saved, but part of his family. That is is the power of the gospel that we see in Romans 1.11. And I can spend the rest of my life just worshiping the Lord for that. But then we move through Romans 12 through 16, and Paul begins to explain how we then ought to live. How does that affect us? How do we live in light of the power of the gospel, the light of this transforming power that, that brought us from dead to life, that, that redeemed us? How are, we, how are we now to live before God and before man. And beginning in chapter 12, Paul reminds us that because of the gospel, we have been restored in that relationship with God, where we were once enemies, we are now his children and, and family, 
And because of that mercy, we ought to live a certain way. We ought to live like one of his children. And we ought to live lives, as Paul says, as a sacrifice to God. And the idea is that we're not just offering part of our life, we're offering our whole life to him. And we, we allow ourselves to be shaped not by the external world around us that's trying to conform us to fit a pattern, but we continue to allow ourselves to be transformed by the Holy Spirit and the power of his word, that we grow progressively little by little, living lives that please and honor him, lives where we begin to grow in obedience, not to be saved, but as the outworking of our salvation. Because because of the gospel's transforming work, we ought to live for him. But as we talked about, we not only have been restored in our relationship with God, we've been restored in our relationship with our fellow man. There's something fundamental that has been changed about us. Because of this transforming power, we are now empowered by the word and by the spirit to live radically differently than we did before towards our fellow man. Because we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, we are empowered to live lives that are supposed to be lights that shine in the darkness so our fellow men can see the goodness of God. And Paul has been unpacking what that looks like in the last part of this letter. And it begins with the family of God. Paul explains that we who belong to the family of God ought to humbly submit to one another. We ought to, we ought to love each other and to serve each other, recognizing that we are not just family, but we are actually part of one another. Paul kind of points us to the fact that our union with Christ brings us into a real unity with one another. It is, it is, is the fact that we are now the same body. What happens to you happens to me. And in light of that, we are to have a deep, sacrificial, agape love for one another and demonstrating that love in the light of Christ. The transforming power of the gospel ought to shape how we live in community together. And this community is then to be a beacon of hope for the rest of the world, as, as Matt was singing. Right, The world's going to know us by that love. Paul then moves on to explain how we live this transformed life towards those who are not part of God's family. And even more specifically, towards those who are hostile towards us personally, or maybe not towards us personally, but towards the God that we serve. These are the ones that Paul would call enemies, both overt enemies and even spiritual enemies. And Paul explains that in light of God's mercy and in light of of the gospel, we are to live in harmony with everyone around us, even when it's really hard. And we are to seek to live at peace with those around us, even when it's really hard. And we are to go further and we are to bless those who are our enemies and do good to those who would harm us, even when it's really hard. And we're to trust in God's justice and we are to be compassionate with everyone around us, even when it's really hard. And so Paul says, in light of the gospel, live out this radical new life in a way that honors God before all people, including those that love us back and those who might not love us so much, both family member and foe. 
And then as we talked about last week, Paul could have just stopped there. I thought that was a pretty inclusive list, but he doesn't stop there. He makes a point to include the group of people that we really struggle to live with, and that is the people who are in authority over us. Be it the federal government, be it the state government, welcome to California, be it law enforcement or managers or employers or teachers or pastors or whoever. Paul talks about how we are to live in submission to authority, no matter who they are, because, because God is ultimately the author of authority. Those in authority in our lives are there, not because they deserve to be there, but because God has appointed them and placed them to be there. And we're to submitted, be submitted to that authority out of reverence and respect for God. Now, obviously, there's a balance to that, and we spent a long time unpacking that. But the truth is, is that we have people in our lives because God has appointed them to be there. And so we're to live in light of the power of the gospel as a living sacrifice to God. And we are to live our lives right, in a way that produces good for our church family and for our neighbors and even for our enemies and even for those that have authority over us. But what is the mechanism that allows us to, to do this? What is, what is the mechanism that holds all this together? We've had a chance to talk about it before, but we come right back to it because Paul brings it up. And it is, it's love. <laughs> True, selfless, agape, love of the will. Not an emotional love, though it can be accompanied with great emotion, but the love of the will. It's the supernatural love that doesn't originate with inside of us. Right? It's the love that flows from us because the Holy Spirit is pouring it out in us. A love that we're not capable of on our own. Remember Paul said in Romans 5, verse 5, God's love has been poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's a supernatural love. And it's the conduit through which the power of God flows from us to a dying world. We can go out there and preach the gospel and be mean and scream at people. We can be condescending and we can certainly point out everybody's flaws continually 24-7. And we, you know. But that's not the conduit. The conduit is the love of God that he has given us for a dying world. It is through love. It is God's love that redeems us. It is the love of God that 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 is in us, that helps us to live the way that he's calling us to live towards our fellow man. And in our text today, Paul is going to unpack more about what that means. In fact, turn with me to Romans 13, verse 8, and we'll just jump right in. Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. And this, this idea of owing is related to debt. In fact, in, the, in this letter, Paul makes a few references to the idea of indebtedness to help us to understand the truth of the gospel. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, Paul helps us to see that we who are redeemed are indebted to the unbelieving world to share the gospel of Christ. It's an obligation. Paul says, I am under obligation to both Greeks and barbarians, to both the wise and the foolish. And then he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Those who have been redeemed by God owe it to God and their fellow men as a debt to share the hope of Christ with the world. 
It is an unpaid obligation. It is an obligation that we all owe. And we're to pay that by what? Living on mission for Christ. Now, not as missionaries who have to fly off to Uganda and not missionaries who have to get sandwich boards and loudspeakers and stand in the corner of Boron Food Market screaming at people, right? But missionaries in your everyday life nonetheless. Unless you forget, if you're in Christ, you, have, you are to be on mission for him. That's why he saved you. The thing is, is I think the greatest freedom that a Christian can experience is when they finally figure out that God didn't save you just simply so you can sit around singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, you know, and just being happy in the fact that you're saved. You were saved not simply to sit in comfy chairs and listen to me preach once a week. You were saved so you can spend the rest of your life glorifying God out there, bringing the gospel to those around you. And so Paul talks about our debt to the world and sharing the hope of the gospel. And then Paul last week talks about, about how we are to pay our debts, right? both financial debts and spiritual debts. In fact, he writes, pay all that you owe to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. And then he goes spiritual on us and says, respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. Paul makes it clear that those who have been transformed by Christ are to pay their debts, be they financial, taxes and loans, or intangible debts like respect and honor and the gospel and love. We are to pay the debts that we owe. And in, the, in that right there is the context we find for what Paul says in this text. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, I'll admit, when you look at the, the Greek, and even in the English, it's a bit of a strange expression. Uh, Let's think about what he's saying here. He writes, owe no one anything except to love each other. Some people have said, well, that means it's okay to not love anybody else because it's a debt you can't pay. But actually, in context, it's not what he's saying. What he's saying is love is an unpaid debt that we continually owe. That's what he's saying. Love is an unpaid debt that we owe. Like taxes, like revenue, like honor, like respect, love is a debt that we owe to our fellow man. That's what Paul is teaching us here. We owe it to each other as an obligation, as an obligation, say that word one more time, an obligation to love one another. Well, what, is, what does he mean by each other? Because some have said, well, Paul is just talking about how we as Christians are love each other, right? Because Jesus made that overtly clear in John. And it is true Christians are to love each other, and the world will certainly know how we love each other by how we, know how we, how we are Christians by the love we have for one another. But, but the context prohibits a narrow application of this, though. You see, what, see, Paul has just finished talking about us loving our enemies, and he just talked about submitting to the government. And in this context, he's actually going to talk about loving our neighbors, Right? And so this context helps us to see that when Paul says to love each other, he's talking about loving our fellow men generally. It's the broadest context that you can have. He's saying we need to love in the broadest possible sense. And what that means then is the love that we have is a debt that we owe to everyone. Just let that marinate for a second. I had to. 
The love that we owe is an obligation that we are to pay to everyone. Right? And that's an all-inclusive everyone. And that means literally that. There's not an exception to the rule here. It is everyone. And I know you probably came in here looking to hear something from the Word of God, and that probably wasn't what you came in here looking for. But here it is, the Word of the Lord. Love is a debt, an obligation, an obligation that we owe to everyone. And that means those you really like and want to be around, and that means those that you don't like and really can't stand the sight of. That means your family and those you love dearly and the guy that you went to second grade with that you still avoid when you go to a boron food market. Because that still happens, right? right? Love is a debt that you owe to everyone, and it's a debt that must be paid. Hence the expression, even in Jesus' own words, love your enemies, right? And if you didn't understand that, Jesus and Paul both said, do good to them, bless them, right? It's not just, hey, okay, I love you, leave me alone. Love is an obligation that we owe to everyone. Why? Why do we need to love them like this? Is it because they deserve it? No. Actually, it's in fact that they don't deserve it, in spite of the fact that they don't deserve it. Agape love has never been about deserving anything. Agape love has never been about what what somebody actually deserves. Because if it were, we're all in trouble. You see, God loved us when we didn't deserve it. God loved us in spite of the fact that we deserve the opposite of that. That's the love that he had for us, and he calls us to love the same way. Well, if it's not them deserving, then why are we so indebted to our fellow man? Why? Well, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. It's actually pretty clear once you get there. We're going to look at verse 26. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26, it reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We owe a debt of love towards our fellow men because he is an image bearer of the God that we love and serve. We owe a debt of love because even though that they are twisted and corrupted by sin as we are, they are still endowed with a certain dignity and worth because they bear the image of the invisible God who is our creator. Even the worst of them. By the way, that's why love is more than just a feeling. 
It must be an action because only then will we push past the junk that we carry around with us. Only then will we be able to put away our judgments and our prejudices and our hurts and our fears. We owe a debt of love because God who created us and redeemed us and loved us when we were unlovable, that God created them too. That is the debt that we owe. But here's the thing about this debt. It's a debt that's always going to be outstanding until we go home to be with the Lord. It is a debt that will never fully satisfy. It's a debt that you won't pay off in this life. None of us can ever say, you know what? I have loved you enough. I'm done. I don't have to love you no more, right? And we've all been there, right? A couple hundred times maybe. As much as me, we may want to say something like that, we have no right to that. Because it's a debt that we continue to owe. It's a debt that we continually must seek to daily pay. We owe it because we owe our God that love. Which, by the way, is why God put that obligation into law. Notice that Paul says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, not only is love a debt that is owed, love is the fulfillment of the law. Because that's what the law is actually all about, loving God and loving our fellow man. Remember what Jesus said himself. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The entire law that was written in the Old Testament can be summarized in two statements. Love God, love others. Love is the fulfillment of the law, which is what we see again in the Ten Commandments. If you ever notice the Ten Commandments really kind of break kind of like in half. First, you have the relationship with God. We shall have no other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall make yourself, you shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. And you shall not take the Lord's name in vain and remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The first of the Ten Commandments is about our relationship with God and loving him the way that he deserves to be loved. And the second half is about our fellow men, beginning with our family. Honor your father and mother. Words that should be, re should be repeated again and again in our culture today. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land and the Lord your God is giving you. And it goes on to, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not build false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Loving is the fulfillment of the entire law of God, which is the point that Paul is making here. And what Paul is saying is that law, the law isn't simply about keeping some rules so you don't get in trouble. That's how people look at the law. It's like, what can I get away with? 
and not be in trouble. The law isn't simply about prohibitions and obligations so that you can avoid punishment. The law is a guide to help us to see the obligation we owe, which is a debt to one another. You see, the problem is many people think that the law and love are unrelated, or even worse, some people think that they're incompatible. In fact, many people believe that the law of the Bible is a bad thing, that it's, that it's negative, that, it is, that, that it's just a list of do's and don'ts, and if you do this bad thing, then that's going to happen to you. People see the law and the consequences of failing to keep the law, and they think that somehow this is bad and ugly. And they think that love, then, is the antidote to the law. That somehow the law, that, le- that the love is opposite of the law. That the law the, is, is some poison that you've ingested and you need a dose of, of love to counteract that. But this couldn't be further from the truth. The law and the love are actually related to one another. In fact, they're necessary for one another because love is upholding the law and the law upholds love. If you remember, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. Jesus said, I didn't come to get rid of them. I came to fulfill them. Well, how did he fulfill the law? By loving us. For God so, what? Loved the world, right? But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ came into the world and literally fulfilled the law on our behalf. He fulfilled the law for us. And then he died to cover our transgressions because we failed to keep the law. Loving our fellow men and loving Loving our fellow men is the fulfillment of the law. And so the law and love are not incompatible. Actually, one author wrote it this way. He says, for love and law, they need each other. Love needs law for its direction, while law needs love for its inspiration. Love fulfills the law. And then Paul says in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. The reason why loving our fellow man is the law is because love does no harm to its neighbor. That's the thing that I gathered from John Stott in his commentary. Love does not harm its neighbor. You see, this law isn't a list of rules to stifle humanity and keep them from living the life that they want to live. The law was given so we don't harm our fellow man. The law was given so we don't hurt other people. Because let's just bear witness to the truth. Sin or breaking the law is horribly destructive and harmful. Let's just be clear about that. Sin harms people in horrible ways. Murder harms them because it robs people of their life. Adultery harms people because it robs people of their homes and their families and their security and their honor and on and on and on it goes. Theft harms because it robs people of their property, things that rightfully belong to them. False witness harms because it robs people of a good name, of opportunities, of friendships, and could even rob them of their freedom in the right context. 
And covetousness robs us all of the ideal of simplicity and contentment. That we can be okay and be in content in our relationship with God. Sin is so destructive and harmful. That is what we see in the world around us. That is the issue that we're seeing. Right? That's why they continue to keep creating more laws and more laws and more laws and more laws. That's why politicians have so much influence on our lives nowadays. I just heard about a deputy sheriff, a Los Angeles deputy sheriff, sitting in his car. Somebody drove up on him and just shot him. Why? 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 It's the lack of love and human decency. The lack of just general respect that you have just for another person, another image bearer of God. Sin is so destructive and harmful. Right? And Paul says, love does not harm. Love doesn't harm neighbors. That's why love is the first in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, by the way. Paul says in Galatians, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Law. The law is rooted in love. Because true love does not harm its neighbor. And so love is the fulfillment of the law, and it's the debt that we owe to our fellow man. And that's how we're to live in light of the gospel. All right, pastor, I hear what you're saying. But I kind of think that sounds a little bit like legalism again. Because didn't you, haven't you said before that loving God and loving others is the law, and that's why we need the gospel, because we can't do that? And it is true. I have said that, and it is true that those things are true. The entire law is summed up in the commands, love God and love others. Everything in the Old Testament is summed up in those two commands. And it is true. We can't do it. We can't. We can't do it. We can't love God the way that he deserves to be loved, and we can't love other people the way that we ought to love them. That's why we need the gospel, not just one time, but the rest of our lives until we go home to be with the Lord. Because Jesus had to come and do for us what we couldn't do. And he lived a perfect, righteous life, loving God and loving his fellow man. And he died to make atonement for how we failed in those things. And then he was raised, proving that the debt has been paid. And we are saved not by loving God and loving others, but by putting our faith in Christ who did it all for us. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And yes, I have said that, but understand, brothers and sisters, if you have come to faith in Christ, you are born again. You are a new creation. You have been moved from death into life. You have been an enemy of God and now adopted into his family. You have a new nature, you have a new heart, and you have been filled with the Holy Spirit, and that spirit pours out the love of God in your heart, not one time, but continually. And that means is if you draw near to Christ and you follow him and you walk with him, you will inevitably grow little by little more and more to be like him. And the natural byproduct, the natural outwork in your faith is that you will grow, even if it's slowly in tiny little steps, you will grow to be more obedient. 
you will grow in obedience to God's command to love him and to love other people. Not as a means to be saved, but just as a simple fruit and outworking of the salvation that God himself has wrought in you. As, as Nigren once wrote, he says, to live in Christ, to walk in love is something entirely different from living under the law and striving to fulfill all of its requirements. And yet the law is fulfilled in it. Therefore, it can be said at the same time that the Christian is free from the law and that in him the law is fulfilled. The picture that Paul is painting is the picture of a life as we abide in Christ. As we day by day grow in grace, trusting in him, loving him, we grow in what, we, what he loves. And guess what he loves? Other people. And the more we abide in him, and the closer we draw to him, and the more we, we walk with one another, the more our lives will be transformed by this supernatural power of the gospel. You see, the call isn't that you need to start loving other people and fulfilling the law. The call is for us to recognize that the natural overflow of the gospel is just that, a growing in our love for our fellow man. And it's a reminder that when we fall short of that, when you have opportunity to love somebody who's hard to love and you fail at it, it's not, oh, I need to try harder. It's a reminder that you need to turn and hold on to Christ. It's never, ever, ever try harder. I want you to know, if you ever hear me preach a message, you walk out of here going, I guess I need to try harder. I have failed you. I just want you to hear me, okay? It is never about try harder. It is never about gritting your teeth and finding the willpower to buckle down and just do your very best. When we fall short of this, the call is always the same. Repent and believe the gospel. Hold on to Christ because he and he alone is our hope. Not your ability to love God, not your ability to love other people. The only hope that you have is to, to hold on to Christ. And as you then go to live out this gospel-centered life and you see that you're falling short and you're stubbing your toe, turn to him and continue to hold on to him. The cry of my heart for the last 11 years is, Lord, change my heart. Lord, change my heart because I can't do it. And so what do we do with this then? How do, we live, how do we apply this this week? It's always the same. If you're not in Christ, repent and believe the gospel. If you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, there's nothing else that you need to know or hear about today except repent and believe the gospel. Turn to him and be saved today. Today is the day of salvation. And if anybody who wants to know how to do that, you can talk to Brother Hugh, you can talk to me, you can, you can talk to a number of people in this church. Miss, Miss Wise always loves talking about the gospel, right? But don't let today pass without coming to faith in Christ. Secondly, rest 
brothers and sisters, in your salvation. When you fall down and make a mess, then glorify God for the fact that he already paid for that sin too. Right? Repent of it, yes. Look to heaven, hold on to Christ, but praise him for his, for his grace and his provision because he provided for that too. And rest in him, trusting that he will see you safely home. And then rescue the lost. That's why you were saved in the first place. There are neighbors and friends around you that have not heard this message. There are neighbors and friends around you that think that they are in Christ and they're working their tails off to try to get his approval. They're caught up in some form of legalism and they're trying really hard to just be really, really, really good people. Again, a friend of mine, you know, from, from Arvin, I, I grew up with, you know, one day he said, just pray for me because I'm just trying to get in the door. I'm going, yeah, missed it, brother. Yeah, missed the gospel. How did you, you know, we've been talking about this for years. How do you not see this? Let us be compassionate and willing to share the gospel at every possible moment to the best of our ability. And then when we fall down, we just come right back to where we started. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.